Hello and welcome to another edition of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star's crime podcast. I'm Michael O'Toole, the paper's crime correspondent, and I'm joined, as usual, by our chief reporter, Paul Healy. Hello, Paul. Hello, Mick. How has your week been? Mental, as per usual. That makes me laugh. I Listeners might know that I used to have your job where I was running around the country all the time, but I'm getting older and my legs have gone. So I'm trying to have the holding midfield role. And I'm, I've got you and John Hand, our, the, our colleague and the chief reporter in the Daily Mirror, who do all the running. And I have a more, what's the word? Well, lazy, possibly might be the word. But, you know, I've got you guys to do all the running and it's great and it, it, it saves my knees. So you, you go around the country basically every couple of days. We're the lackeys, yeah, I see. Right. Uh. But, but, but <laughs> I, I, I must admit, in my 30s and 40s, oh my God, I loved going around the country. Yeah. I really, really loved it. Do you like travelling so much? Yeah, I do. I, that, that's why I signed up to be a reporter. So like, I, I, yeah, I enjoy being on the road. That's where the job is. And this uh, work from home thing is something that's only benefited me and my career because I, I, I never work from home, really. My, my home is my car. <laughs> As you well know, you're always on the road. Not every day, but, but almost every day. Because uh, that's where the stories are. Mm. Yeah, and I, 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 I still go out in the road, but nowhere near as much as you. Um, and I, I must say, it's a, it's a, what's that saying? What's seldom is, is wonderful. And I do, and I know that I was on the road to Mayo last week for the, the fatal shooting of a man over there. I won't go into it because there's another man charged. But just journalistically, it was great to get out in the road again. So I am trying to, although you guys have the, the sort of the first go at getting out, I'm trying to, to get out myself a wee bit because it is, it is very, I, I find it very enjoyable. Okay, it's very stressful because we're deal, we deal with serious issues, but I do quite like going out on the road and meeting people. One of the things that people don't realise, one of the best parts of our job is knocking on doors and talking to people and finding not even people that we're searching for, but, you know, people who may help is just knocking on random doors if we're lost and how decent most Irish people are that we come across. Yeah, I'll, I'll give an example when we're going to talk about the, the first story here uh, of, of, of just how that works, the anatomy of a doorstep, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. So we've got a few things to talk about, but one of the one of the most important ones that we think we'd like to mention is Paul did a, a very good story in The Star on, on The Mirror uh, this week where he confronted a convicted sex offender called Joe Dunn. Now, it, it was quite a remarkable interview, so I'd like to hear what Paul has to say about it. Yeah, interview is an interesting word because it was more a confrontation, but uh, you're, you're, you're quite used to that, Mick. Um, we often have confrontations uh, with people of this nature. We got wind of this story uh, last Friday when it was in the courts uh, that this individual, Joe Dunn, a former priest, um, had been convicted and sentenced in relation to the sexual assault of a young woman uh, in the 1980s. And as, as I mentioned, he's a former priest, so that immediately uh, struck my attention um, there are certain stories that I suppose are, are bread and butter in a tabloid like The Star and The Mirror, uh, and this is one of them. And when I saw that this uh, Joe Dunn individual received a suspended sentence, um, I thought, right, there's an opportunity to track down and doorstep uh, this this person. A doorstep is a confrontation. It's arriving at somebody's doorstep and, and literally approaching them and asking them for a comment. Um, in this case... There was also another unique element in that the, the presiding judge jailed uh, Joe Dunn to four years in prison, but then suspended the sentence entirely, not in terms of mitigating factors in relation to Joe Dunn himself, but because he is actually the sole carer for his elderly sister. She's in her 90s. And the judge felt it would be unduly unfair on that uh, lady, 
if Joe Dunn was jailed because she would have uh, no one to care for her. So uh, that's a unique circumstance in its own right. Maybe you might remember a case like that, Mick, but I, I, I've, I've, I've not come across that in recent times where someone has been spared a jail sentence for the sake of somebody else. It's funny you mentioned that because I was reading another story just in the wires. We get all the, the court copy and stuff and I obviously take an interest in, in all the cases and I was reading uh, there was a man, no, it's down the country and I think it's still live but there was, it was there were various things said and it was about a case of sexual abuse and essentially the judge says in that case that caring, being the sole carer or being a carer is not a good enough excuse to spare someone from prison. Really? So you see, every, I suppose every judge every reacts differently. Judge that, is different, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's up to the judges, as we say. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just, it struck me as this is a case that perhaps we should uh, highlight uh, on a national level, go down and, and doorstep this individual and, and put it to him. Does he have an apology for his victim? Is he sorry for his actions? Uh, and is he grateful to have been spared a jail sentence? Um so how did you find him? That's always interests me. I love this bit. How did you well, get him? Well, as I mentioned, it, it, it's worth discussing. Uh, you, you brought up how a doorstep works, and, and this is a good example. I mean, I, I had an address of, of Ballycrystal, Geeshill County, Offaly, um, but the, it's it's very much a townland, and, and oftentimes, you know, Mick, you don't always... that That's the address you get. It's a townland in the middle of nowhere, and it really was legitimately middle of nowhere. Uh, no offence to the people of Geeshill, but it's a, it's a small... Townland um, and Ballycrystal then an, an offshoot of that. So, I mean, really you're talking a, a long stretch of road with 20 odd houses on it, maybe more. And uh, myself and, and photographer Mick O'Neill were driving up and down this road wondering which bloody house does he live in? And you're trying to kind of use your, your head a little, you know, okay, he's obviously going to be living in a uh, an older house, uh, a bungalow perhaps, but you're, you're, you're trying to put two and two together. Um, Effectively, we made the decision, right, we're going to have to knock on a few doors here and just ask, uh, do you know Joe Dunn? Uh, Father Joe Dunn, as I said. It's important to um, provide, uh, just just in case uh, people know him as a former priest or whatever. So, knocked on a few doors and and, uh, lo and behold, just a couple of doors up from where he actually was living, um, a a very nice gentleman answered the door uh, and told me, oh, I don't know, I'm only new here. Um, I I don't know anybody on the road. And I went, oh, right, okay, I'm going to have to knock on how many more doors and just as I was kind of getting ready to walk away he said oh um, but my missus actually she was only saying to me that there, uh, there's a former priest living in a house down the road there and he just pointed to this yellow bungalow down the road and I had former priest and it's probably him I, I'd say there's a good chance of it being him so we went down and we did what's called a stakeout um, the reason why we do this uh, why we don't necessarily just knock straight on the door is because look, there are various circumstances where we're trying to get people, and uh, someone else might answer answer the door, and then that's your only opportunity blown, so to speak. And and you don't always necessarily have, look, be honest, the best angle for a photographer to take a photograph of somebody from their front door. If someone is out in a public space, you know, you have a greater opportunity to take a photograph of them, and you have every right to take a photo of someone. Uh, it, it, from a public road, from a public space. So we, we sat outside the house for a period of time. We didn't actually have to sit for very long uh, when Joe Dunn actually pulled up in his car and got out a bottle of milk in hand and he started feeding some cats there in his front garden. So we thought that was the opportunity to confront him, which we did, which I did. Um, and uh, Mick, was take, Mick O'Neill was taking photographs. Uh, 
discreetly <laughs> um, whilst I was approaching Joe Dunn. And he initially couldn't hear me. Um, I He's an elderly man, so I had to kind of effectively start shouting at him. Obviously didn't want to uh, create a ruckus, but I was effectively shouting at this elderly man. I'm a reporter from the Star newspaper. Um, initially, he was smiling at me and, and very friendly until he re- until the penny dropped, so to speak, and he realized, oh, reporter. Um, and he kind of just lost it with me then. He said, I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to know. Uh, I don't want to know anything about papers. Um, and I, I, I didn't stay for long, but I just I put the important questions to him. Do you not have an apology for your victim? Um, you know, uh, are you grateful to be spared a jail sentence? And throughout all of this, I try to be polite, no matter what my personal thoughts might be on this uh, person guilty of a horrendous criminal offence. I, I, I was very friendly and courteous to him, but he was not equally as friendly to me. He was effectively shouting at me and telling me to get, get off his, get off his property or he'd be calling the guards. So of course, the second he said that I did leave. Um, but we got fantastic photographs of him, of that doorstep of that moment. And it was worth highlighting, and it, it, it's the story has done phenomenally well because I think it has shocked uh, people that I suppose a person can carry out such an offence, historic sexual offence, um, and and can be spared a jail sentence for, for rather unique circumstances. I, I don't want to go into too much detail uh, in case it's harrowing for people to listen to. I suppose they can Google the case, but he, he indecently assaulted this young woman uh, who was already in a vulnerable state. She was already the victim of sexual abuse. And he actually uh, assaulted her uh, whilst driving her to the rape crisis centre. So that'll tell you the kind of character that he is. What, what, um, how do you find, you and I have both confronted an awful lot of sex offenders. I probably know the answer to this, but what do you make of them? I always find them sort of self-centred and self-pitying. And it seems that, you know, sometimes they regard themselves as the victims. Yeah, um, it's difficult to generalize, but 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 yeah, there is there. We I've seen I've seen a lot of of that in in my time doorstepping. Uh, people who have committed sexual offences, they do seem to be quite self centered. Uh, and and talk about themselves quite a bit, not so much the victim. Um, and as you know, Mick, like we often do doorsteps. Okay, this is an example of a man who told me to get lost. He did say a couple of things before he told me to get lost, but. Oftentimes, uh, pe- sexual offenders they do seem to like to talk, um, and you you nearly find nine out of ten times you're the one trying to walk away because they they haven't stopped yapping, and it's usually as you said self centered, all about me me me. Uh, I could give you a prime example. Um, just a couple of years ago, I, I doorstepped an individual named Paddy O'Brien. Uh, he was a a, a quite well known uh a rapist. Um. He sexually abused his daughter Fiona Doyle, and a lot of people would know Fiona Doyle. She's an outspoken uh, advocate for victims. Um, but uh, it was all me, me, me. And uh, I, I think I talked to him for a half an hour. And I think eventually I had to say, right, Paddy, I'm, I'm off. Like you know, I, I, I couldn't really listen to it because it was all self-serving stuff and poor me kind of behaviour. And and you know, you probably have experienced that tenfold. I doorstepped him myself. I remember uh, I was out in. It was it was done. This was a long time ago because that that has been that was a long running saga about uh, O'Brien and, and poor Fiona Doyle, who really is a tremendous advocate uh, for victims. But I, yeah, I, I we doorstepped him, and I remember the photographer. I'll talk about door, uh, stakeouts because you raised this, and I want to talk about stakeouts. But the photographer got a great shot of him. You know, I was you know it's the usual standard pick of me at the door and him at the, 
standing inside in the, in the stair door well, I suppose, or the doorway, and he was laughing. Yeah. And the number of people who of sex offenders that we confront like that, and they do, they, they I don't know whether they regard they're deluded, but they do. A lot of them do tend to treat it as a joke. Yeah, and I mean, in in, in that case, uh, you know, he pleaded guilty, but yet he was still kind of like, yeah, "I'm guilty," but you know, it's not the way she's telling it, and and trying to mitigate, and and you know, he, I think he even said at one point, "It's it wasn't rape," but I mean, you know, it was rape. She and she was a child, and she was your daughter. Um, and I, and I, I think I put a kind of a hypothetical to him, like if you were reading about somebody uh, who had carried out uh, the, the rape of their daughter, a sexual abuse of their daughter, what would you think of that type of person? And I think he said something to the effect of, oh, that person would be a right bastard. So, I mean, he could criticize himself in the, in the uh, <laughs> externally, but, but, but when talking about it directly, it was all poor me and, ah, yes, I did it, but... Uh, I have excuses for why I did it, you know. That so you know when to walk away. But that's he's a good example of of uh, the self serving type <laughs> that we've encountered. So you you raise something there, and this is the beauty of this pod. It sort of meanders like a river, and topics yeah. come and go. You mentioned stakeouts, and um, stakeouts. The longest one I did it was actually with Mick O'Neill. It was in Southampton in England, and it was for about four days but when I say four days I mean 24 hours four by four we were sleeping in the car and stuff it was it was horrendous and it happened and we got the man um, and you know it was four days but it the, the confrontation or the approach lasted for about 30 seconds and it, you know it's like slow slow quick 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 and then that's it but stakeouts in the country are very very difficult I find because you you know in, in a housing estate in Lucan or Swords or whatever you can, to a large extent, blend in. Although I think you're spot, you're you're spotted within ten or fifteen minutes wherever you are. Yeah. Oh, generally speaking, and in in an active housing estate, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, you're, you're you're. And you know, people see in the movies. But I always laugh when I see in the movies about cops and stakeouts, and they're sitting there and they're, you know, having donuts and coffee, and you know, they're nobody walks past, nobody goes, "What the hell are you guys at?" Because that is that people that does happen to us that you're sitting in a car and within five or ten minutes, people come out, you see the curtains twitching, people go, "Are you all right there, big lad?" You know what I mean? That does happen, but. Uh, rural ones are very difficult you know say if it's a ribbon development as, well, as you were saying there's one house there's 20 houses you have to pick somewhere and you're literally the only car on the street and people spot you very very quickly like within a minute it's like what's going on there yeah they do uh, <laughs> they're, they're never really great fun stakeouts are they but I mean, God, I could give you plenty of examples of, uh, <laughs> of of incidents where we were caught quite quickly have they got have the guards ever been called to you? Yeah, um, yeah, we've had that, and um, uh, without naming the the particular case, I, I can remember at one stage the the guards came up to us and they thought we were quite suspicious. But as soon as we said, told them who we were and what we were doing, um, I would say they were quite supportive. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah. Oh, they were like, oh, ah, right, okay, and you know, fire ahead. So, yeah, so and that one in Southampton, the the, the English police came up and confronted us, and, and they were grand. I have our press passes and stuff, and you know. They know the crack. But I've had well over a dozen incidents with guards. I had one in Spain. We were staking out a fella uh, who was, uh, he was, he got out in bail and we, we he was charged with a very serious offence and we knew he got bail quite a distance away from where the incident happened. So we were staking him out and I was so used to being confronted by, you know, guardian English cops. 
that uh, we were outside this place for about eight hours and a Polythian Ocala local police car drove past us and I said it was Mick O'Neill who comes with us everywhere. I said, oh Jesus, Mick, they've spotted us. So because I spoke Spanish, I decided, F this, I'm going after them, we're going to sort it out. So we drove after them and confronted them and I started speaking Spanish. Listen, lads, we're journalists from Ireland, showed their press passes on our passports. I said, we're just looking for this fellow, we want to talk to him. He said, oh yeah, no problem, fire ahead and it was grand. But that just goes to show you how much it was at the forefront of my mind. Any place, you know, oh, here, we're in the doo-doo again. Because it does, because they, they do come up and say, what's going on? What are you at? It's not as if people think, I sometimes think people watching the movies think a stakeout, you're sort of, you have a, an invisible shield around you where nobody spots you. Let me tell you, you're spotted very, very quickly. Well, I did a stakeout with you, Mick, where you you uh, you disappeared yourself, and I now I won't. <laughs> we won't talk about that. No. <laughs> you had to mention it, didn't you? I was providing a service for you and Mick O'Neill, and you know it. Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. That's that, that maybe was a we can end talk about that another time. Yeah, there's only so long that you can sit in a car before you you kind of do lose it. Well, that's true, and you know that, that it, it was after it was in April last year when the the sanctions were done, and the three of us went over to Marbella. We were trying to find a house where Kinnan, that was registered to Kinnan. And it was an address I had for Christopher Kinnan for more, more than a decade, actually. So we were sitting outside it. And it, now it was very warm in that car because you couldn't turn the engine on. You couldn't put on the uh, air conditioning because you, you don't want to be seen. You try and keep a low profile. So it was extremely warm that it day. Was, it was, but you did come back with McDonald's when you left us. So we, we forgive you. <laughs> yeah. I did. I did think of you. I want to talk about, actually, you know what? I'm going to tell you one very quick story about Spain and then we'll move on. It was another time, Mick O'Neill and I, I just, this, this is, I, I love telling this story because it's about just chance and you chanced upon that house where the guy said, oh yeah, that fella lives down the road in the Ella, the Ella bungalow. So in 2010, people will know that Operation Shovel happened when it was the big raids against the Kinnan cartel in Spain. So Mick O'Neill went, and I went over and we were there for a week. And on the Saturday, on the Sunday, we didn't have really anything to do. So I came up with the brainwave of driving from uh, Estepona to Torre Vieja in Alicante. Estepona, Marbella is near Estepona in the Costa del Sol. Alicante is on the Costa Brava. And that was an eight hour drive. There was a man we wanted to interview. I'd interviewed him before in relation to, he was held in Spain in relation to the murder of two men called the Westies, who were infamous Irish criminals, Suggan Coates, who were killed. And this man was held. Now, char- charges against him have been shelved, so I won't name him. But I'd spoken to him before and we just thought, there's nothing to do. Let's drive for eight hours. And I had a, a rough address, or a rough, I had a, I had a phone number for him and we're ringing it on the way and it was dead. But I knew the pub that he was working in. I think he owned the pub at the time. Now, it's, we'll call it the main fiddle. That's not its name. So we're driving around Tarivieja. Now, Tarivieja, Paul knows Tarivieja. There's probably about 40,000 people there, aren't there? It's a big enough place. It's pretty big, yeah. Yeah, and we were driving along and I was getting ratty with Mick because he'd been there for eight hours and we're, his phone was dead and, you know, we'd spent all this time trying to find him. So Mick saw this couple walking down this street. We were just in a, an ordinary street. Mick saw this couple walking down and he said, why don't you speak to them? And I always get ratty because because I speak Spanish, I have to do all the talking and I, after a while it gets on your nerves. So I, I grudgingly pulled over and I started speaking Spanish to this couple saying, listen, we're just... Wonder if you can help us. And the fella said, Sorry, mate, I don't speak Spanish. And he was a dub, right? I said, Oh, geez, bloody hell, brilliant. I said, Would you know this pub? We're looking for this pub, whatever fake name we're going to give it. And the guy said, Oh, yeah, I work in it. <laughs> so it was a million to one chance. And I said, Oh, Jesus Christ, I give him my card. Will you give that to your boss? And within 15 minutes, the boss rang and we got a front page interview. And it was fantastic. But that, that happens sometimes in journalism. You just come across lucky breaks. Yeah, I, uh, they say you make your own look. Oh, you, you, you do, you make your own look. You can get really lucky. 
they're not all like that. I wish they were all like that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what, what do you want to talk about next? Um, I think we should talk about uh, the, the case of uh, Tina Satchwell um, because uh, we, by the time this pod is out, we will basically be approaching uh, the anniversary of her disappearance, which is on Monday, the 20th of March. Uh, so Tina went missing in 2017. That long? I, I can't believe it's that long. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And it's a case that I, I always think it's worth highlighting because it's just so baffling. Like, um, and we there are there are many missing persons cases, but this one it just raises a couple of 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 flags. And there's been a lot of there initially for 2017, 2018, there was a a lot of publicity. Um, and and her um Tina's husband Richard was always uh, doing interviews and was uh, was was constantly in the media. And then it kind of fizzled out uh, because nothing really happened. But it's. It's just a baffling case and it's worth mentioning because uh, today I I made efforts and I've been making efforts for the past couple of days to uh, contact Richard Satchwell to, to ask him uh, would he like to speak, uh, do an interview. Um, and he's quite reluctant uh, to speak these days. Uh, he, he's, he's somewhat tired of the whole thing and feels that he's, I suppose he feels he's repeating himself and repeating the appeal. Um, and, and he did come back to me today and, and, and said... Uh, effectively what what else is there to say um i don't have anything else to say um and and that's where he's left it it's open to him to come back uh, to speak to me of course but just to give people the the basic facts of this case um tina went missing from from their home in yall in in, in county cork uh, on the 20th and richard actually reported her missing four days later on the 24th um and they're they're they were a well-known couple in the all area but they were quite private in, in their own respect like people would have known them to see them they went to car boot sales um and richard is a is a truck driver so he would quite frequently be uh out of the country um all over the and all over this country um and indeed we, we have tried to doorstep him a couple of times and he wasn't there because he was off somewhere else driving a truck um but she she disappeared on the 20th according to richard at uh, the last time he saw her was was he, he he went out and when he came back she was gone and there were two briefcases that were missing um and he claims that that she took off with 26000 euro in cash uh to this day uh, sh- she apparently has not accessed her bank account and uh her mobile phone as well uh had, had not been used um so the, her family, uh, certainly uh, her sister Teresa, has said to me, you know, how, if she is alive, how is she surviving? What is she surviving on? Um, Richard has indicated that there were family issues and, and the reason he didn't go to the guards Im- immediately was because he, he this apparently had been raised and he thought that Tina had left to clear her head, as he said it. And he thought that she would come back. And it was only, as uh, say, four days later that he became concerned that she wasn't coming back and reported her missing now he has been the subject of many interviews as i've said in which the question was put to him uh do you consider the, 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 do you think the guardie consider you to be a suspect um and did you have anything to do with her disappearance he has emphatically denied on multiple occasions that he had anything to do with her disappearance um and he he, he thought at one stage he was a suspect but then felt later he wasn't um and cut to uh 2000 and- 18 then in March, uh, the, really the only development, there was a huge search out in Mitchell's Wood um, in Castle Martyr. Um, there was a tip-off from a member of the public that they had seen 
who they thought was Tina Satchwell with a man um, on the night she disappeared uh, walking into the woods. Do you recall that? I remember because I actually got the line that I, I remember the public said that, that it was a man walking with her into the woods. So yeah, and I can remember I, I went down to Castle Murder for that search and you're right, it was a very significant search. I, I remember I was also in Yahal trying to talk to Mr. Satchel as well. You're right, I don't think he was in the day of the night. It was, it was pretty early on after the disappearance that I went down. But yes, I was down there in Castle Murder. Actually, when you were talking, I was racking my brains trying to think when it was because I, I can't believe it's it's 2017. That's six years. My God, time flies. But yes, I went down and I, I do recall at the time there was a level of confidence and optimism that they were going to find her there. But obviously they didn't. And it's, you know, that, you know, we can name them all. Annie McCarrick, you know, so many disappeared women. And sadly, this just this seems to be the way of that going, that this is just going to be another unsolved woman case. But there's obviously a human story behind it. But just there is a number of women and a number of men as well who have just disappeared without a trace. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You have to wonder at this stage, will it ever be solved? There have been 400 lines of inquiry, apparently. In- well, Interpol got involved. 200 statements taken, CCTV, everything. The guards don't believe that Tina left the country. They've said that. They don't believe she went to the UK. Richard initially believed that she might have gone to the UK to her family. Her family in the UK insists that she's never been in contact with them uh, since going missing. Um, there was a curious story uh, that developed um, after her disappearance that her, her, her mother, she grew up thinking that her sister, uh, sorry, that her mother was her sister. Um, and that she was actually raised by her grandparents, and she thought her grandparents were her parents. Um, and but but I think Richard has said that that wasn't the the source of the family conflict. But it's a curious thing that kind of came out after the fact. Uh, Richard has never fully disclosed what this family issue is, and says it's up to Tina to come out and say what this family issue is. Uh, similarly, the family in the UK have not said anything about there being any family issue. Um, but he continues, or has continued to maintain over the years that he thinks that that might, that might be the reasoning behind that. Um, but look, it just remains a baffling mystery, and I think that's why it was worth mentioning. Yeah, and so, you know, say I've covered the cases of Deirdre Jacob, Annie McCarrick. When I started in journalism, they were current. Now they're, sadly, in a lot of people's memories. And I just wonder, you know, in 15, 20 years, and you're still a journalist, will the case of Tina Satchwell be similar to that of Annie McCarrick, for example, that there might be a faint memory in some in your memory or, you know, some readers and listeners' minds. And that's that's quite sad when you think about it because I've interviewed Deirdre Jacobs' parents and they're absolutely lovely people and they live with it every day. Same with Annie McCarrick's mother. I know she was in, in the media over the last couple of weeks and obviously Mr. Satchwell is missing his wife. So, it, it you know, we can sometimes look at it and go, God, is it that long? I mean, I was shocked that it was 2017, but Mr. Has Satchwell has lived it every day. Dear Jacob's parents live it every day. Annie McCarrick's mother live it, lives it every day. It's it's not easy. No, it's not. And I, I, I sincerely hope it, that we're not talking about it in 10, 15 years time. Hopefully, hopefully it is solved. Hopefully um, the answers do come. Um, there was a guard appeal this week. Look, we'll see if anything new comes out of it. But um I always feel it's worth mentioning and worth covering and we have to continue to keep these stories alive in the media. Um, so hopefully hopefully the right person with the right information comes forward. Um, I think it's worth talking about um, 
Stephen Silver and, and the death of uh, Detective Garda Colum Horkin. Uh, Stephen Silver today, uh, as we're doing this podcast, has been found uh, guilty of the capital murder of Detective Garda Colum Horkin, um, which is a crime that took place on the 17th of June 2020, which again only seems like yesterday. That was actually th- nearly three years ago now. Um, but I can remember, yeah, you could probably remember vividly as well the day that happened. Oh, I do. I remember, I remember that night because it happened. I got, we got word of it very, very late. I think it was like, it was half 11 that we got to hear about it and we got it confirmed practically towards midnight. And anybody in newspapers, oh, that's extremely late. Now, we did, I think we, we did get it in the paper that night. But, and I think, you know, you're, you're quite, you're quite right, Paul. June 2020, it doesn't seem that long ago, but it, but it is. It's, it's, it's nearly three years. But yes, look, Obviously, he was convicted of capital murder today. He had admitted manslaughter, denied denied murder. And there were several op- options open to the, the jury. They could have found him guilty of capital murder, which they did. Could have found him guilty of manslaughter or not, not guilty by reason of insanity. Because he did have, you know, he was, there was evidence that he had mental health issues. But there was also evidence that the murder the action behind the murder was as not as a result of an illness, but because of his personality. They'd had a fiery personality. So look, you know, we always said it's up to the judges and the jury. I, I think a, a lot of people would have welcomed the capital murder. Now, capital murder is different because it's at least 40 years. You know that Aaron Brady is serving 40 year, at least 40 years for the murder of Detective Garda Adrian Dono, who was in the same class in Templemore as Detective Garda Horgan. Wow. Terrible tragedy. Two, two, yeah, two fine officers. There, there was a wee WhatsApp thing going around afterwards to how they were in the same class and how they, they knew each other. So, so one class in Templemore, which is the Garda College, touched by two horrific tragedies. So Silver hasn't been sentenced yet, but it's mandatory. So he it's, it's in a few weeks, I believe. And it's, and it's going to be at least 40 years. Life in Ireland, it's open-ended, but at the minute, it's really... On average, about twenty years. It could be nineteen, could be twenty. It, some people could be sixteen, but you're talking on average twenty years. So forty years is, is a very long stretch. And I think one of the, the reasons for that is is that it sends out a message, particularly as in Garda Shikana, is a largely unarmed force. That if you're going to murder a Garda, the penalties will be much heavier. Yeah, and the very tragic thing about this is 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 that Detective Garda Horkin had only recently become a detective, um, and you know he was. I suppose looking forward to, to that part of his career he was carrying out his normal duties he'd only just started his duty that day in 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 castle re when he came across stephen silver and look obviously stephen silver uh you know he's not a rational thinker um but but when it comes to what happened uh to detective garda horkin i mean he 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 managed to take his gun off him and he fired 11 shots into him he emptied that gun into him i mean just pure evil and, and absolutely you know not the actions of a rational person and it's an indicator of the dangers that can happen to any guard at any time you, you know he wasn't going to a bank robbery he wasn't investigating any organised crime groups he was responding to reports that two young fe- two fellas had been acting a yahoo on a motorbike and been driving around and being loud and Stephen Siller been shouting his head off and that's why Garda, Detective Garda Horkin went to it yeah, and it's just it went from not to hundred in a half second, and that's the risks that any Garda. Look at Tony Golden, who was murdered in uh, Car- uh, in O'Meath. You know, he he was responding. He wasn't responding to a bank robbery. He was responding to a domestic violence incident. He was getting a woman out of house. Guards 
hundreds of guards do that every single day. And hundreds of guards did what Detective Garda Horkin did that day. He went up to some fella and said, what's the crack? And then that's it. And that's the danger of being a guard. And I remember the, I remember the chaos of the scene. I mean, I, I went to Castle Ree, uh, after shortly after it happened. Um, and I can remember speaking to people who, uh, businesses and people in the area who, who witnessed and heard what happened. Um, and I can remember there was a business there, I think it was a menswear shop, and there were bullet holes in the building. Um, from and it happened on a main street there, you know. I mean, they're just pure chaotic, uh, scene. And and you know, look, the evidence in in the case was it was equally extraordinary. Um, Stephen Silver claimed uh, uh wrongfully, uh, there's no evidence for this, but he was claiming that he believed uh, that that Detective Garda Corkin was trying to kill him, and that's why he did what he did. Uh, don't think that excuses any action. Um, but. And he also said he didn't know that he was a guard because he was in plain clothes. Plain clothes, Tommy Hilfiger, yeah. 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 I mean he was in an unmarked car, but guards are guards. You know yeah. what I mean? And just on the on the psychological aspect, just you know, the, the, there there was evidence from Brenda Rice, the clinical director of Central Mental Hospital. She said uh that in her view, his thinking might have been impaired and his judge uh, his judgment uh was impaired uh, at the time uh, due to the his illness but there was contrasting evidence then from a consultant psychiatrist harry kennedy uh, who said that there was no positive evidence uh, that silver suffered a relapse of uh, he had a bipolar affective disorder at the time um, and he said there was no evidence that that had anything to do with his actions that day and obviously the jury sided with that because they found they didn't find him not guilty by reason of insanity uh they found him guilty of murder and if, if i'm correct professor kennedy is the head of the central mental hospital which used to be in Dundrum, but is now in, uh, I think it's done a bit in North Dublin. So that's where people, you know, who are, for example, people who are acquitted of murder by reason of insanity are sent there. You know, they're not, not incarcerated, but that's that's where they're they're placed, shall we say. And they, they don't have liberty to leave. I mean, they effectively are in there. Again, you know, despite what they, that's it. I'm not trying to call them prisoners, but despite, you know, for their own safety and they have to stay there. So it's effectively serving a sentence, but it's in a hospital. So he's a very popular man, and we, you and I would probably both know lots of Gardaí. This is, yeah, lots of, this is the thing about the guards. Every guard probably knows personally seven or 800 at least Gardaí because you train with people, you work in different units, you know, you work in different parts of the country. So a lot of people would have known Garda, Detective Garda Harkin, and he was heavily involved in the GAA as well. So look, he was, a, he was, from what we know, the people who we know who knew him loved and respected him and he was a very, very, very good guard. Absolutely. I think I'll just uh, I'll, I'll briefly read just the statement that was released there by uh, Colin Horkin's brother, Brendan, um, it, which was just after the verdict today. He said, we were, we were horrified and shocked to the court to learn of the circumstances that led to Colin's death as he went about his job policing the streets and keeping the general public protected and safe at all times. Colin was a fantastic son brother uncle and friend and his memory remains etched in our minds every minute of every day and today's verdict will give us some closure um but will never replace the man who was the glue of our family that bonded us all together we love him dearly he sounds like a mighty man okay well we leave it there for this week paul i think so yeah we've discussed a lot uh, on that note and in memory of detective Garda Colum horkin um so we we We'll be back next week. I've done an interview, which is a really excellent interview. It's about policing. And we should, uh, that 
will, should be that should be out on Monday afternoon. But I would urge people to listen. It's a really fascinating topic. So I won't say much more than that. But I would urge people to listen. In. And thanks for listening to, to us today. Thank you.